And how old are you? 25. 20, oh, 28 now. <laughs> Bloody old. <laughs> it's almost over for you. <laughs> Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed Mia Freeman, who has built pretty much, I'd say, an empire man in Australia in terms of a huge podcast network, author of some really cool books as well, uh, a real powerhouse woman in Australian business. Yeah, she started with the blog mamamia.com.au and it quickly, quickly branched out into a massive, as you say, empire in terms of a pod, the Mamma Mia podcast network in terms of her latest book is called Work Strife Balance. So we talked a lot about the idea of balance. Is it possible or is it just a fantasy? We talked about a bit of career advice and importantly, we talked about side hustles because her latest project is called Lady Startup, teaching women specifically how to get started in business or how to grow their own businesses. Man, she's really, really cool person. Great, warm, uh, welcoming great and energy. got some extremely great content. So I reckon everyone's going to really enjoy this one. Well, the first uh, official question we want to ask, you know, this idea of work-life balance, it sounds like a dream. Is it achievable or is it just an impossible fantasy? Um, well, I really wanted to, I think I, my publisher and I made a big mistake in not calling that book Balance is Bullshit mm. because I think um, that was what I wanted to call it, but they were nervous because they said it wouldn't play well in supermarkets. But I wanted to make that kind of strong statement you know, work strife balance is just a bit, it, it's not enough because I just think that not only is it not achievable, I think that the whole premise of talking about it sets particularly women up for failure because I think that it's a little bit like the thigh gap for your whole life um, in terms of women in that, I don't know, maybe 1% of women have a thigh gap, but that doesn't mean that the other 99% of us are doing it wrong. Mm. And a lot of the times that you can't have balance are the best, most important, most exciting times in your life. And even if they're not exciting, even if they're terrible, so, you know, some examples of some exciting times might be when you've got a new job, you've got a new promotion, you're having a baby, um, falling in love. Bad times might be when you've got mental health crisis, you've got a, you just got sacked, you've got made redundant, you've got a parent who's not well, you're having a breakup. You don't get to choose the timing of them. Mm. And so... It's not like you can say, oh, hang on, sick parent. I need to have my balance and that's going to throw me off balance. So what I see in the women that I know and the women that I work with um, is that not only are they dealing with whatever either happy crisis or sad crisis that they've got to deal with, they're also feeling bad that they're leaning too far, you know, off balance. Mm. And so, I don't know, I always say it's more like a hokey pokey. Sometimes you've got to lean in to work. Sometimes you've got to lean into family. Sometimes you've got to lean into your mental health, your partner, whatever it happens to be. Mm. So this uh, stereotypical idea of careers having this perfect balance is like really utopian. Do you think um, the utopian ideas of what careers should be really gets people unstuck in a lot of cases? Yeah, because I just think that by their very nature. I mean, the idea of work-life balance is kind of a marketing term or, or a sort of a self-help term that was invented in the 80s or, or so um, to sort of say, you, you've got to have a life outside work. Cool. No disputing that. If you've got kids, not even an option to not have a work outside life. You know that. But the idea that you can somehow perfectly balance everything is an impossibility. And I think it's an expectation that just is quite frankly, bullshit. Like yeah. it is bullshit. Absolutely. Definitely. In terms of at the the start of your career, uh, obviously you've got an awesome career story and we're keen to hear a few of those things. How do you think, you know, young people at the start, maybe they aren't at the point where they need to have all this balance from outside things and mm. maybe it's, it is the time where they're leaning into their career. Mm. What are some good ideas to stand out from the, the sea of all these new graduates coming into the workplace and just being, how do you stand out from just being one, another number? I think humour is always really helpful. Um, Zoe Foster, who's now Zoe Foster-Blake, applied for a job when I was the editor-in-chief of Cosmo Cleo and Dolly. Um, I had a role, I think it was on Dolly, I think it was for the deputy editor. And I had so many CVs that were coming in and I, I hate recruiting more than anything. I find it incredibly boring. But I was looking through the CVs and I found hers and she had a, a reference letter in there from Rupert Murdoch. Mm. 
saying how amazing she was. Of course, I worked out pretty quickly it wasn't at all from Rupert Murdoch. It was from her <laughs> and it was really funny. And I just thought I've got to meet this girl yeah. because it, I mean, that takes a certain degree of chutzpah and mm. um, she wasn't right for that job. She didn't end up getting it. She didn't have the experience. But my God, I remembered her. And when the next job came around, she was the first person I reached out to. So I think that humour can help. Yeah. And I also just think, I don't know. I, I'm the wrong person to ask about in terms of experience, um, like tertiary experience, because I didn't end up finishing my degree. Um, and neither did my husband. And it looks like neither is our eldest son, <laughs> continuing the tradition, dropping out of uni. Um, so I think that showing people someone that you can do what it is that you're being employed to do potentially is always great. Yeah. Because you worked for free, from what I understand, when you yeah. had the very start, which is very different to the traditional approach. Um, so do you advocate that for some people that actually just working for free is could be the better options in many cases? It's really funny how you say working for free. Like doing work experience, as it was called then, or interning now, um, that was the only way in. Mm. And like everyone I know... Um, certainly of my generation, that's how we all started. And this idea that, you know, that <laughs> there's this sense of, oh, it's exploitative and you're using this person. It's like if someone is going to intern or do work experience, you've got to acknowledge when I started at Clio, I was 19 years old, I knew nothing. Mm. Like it actually was took time. It wasn't that I was just free labour at Clio. It took the time of some people who were very well paid. Their time was actually worth a lot because they w did have experience. Mm. They had to train me. They had to look after me. They had to teach me. They had to show me the ropes. They had to edit my work. They had to tell me, give me briefs. And I think that it's it's always got to be a two-way street. Obviously, I had to offer something in return um, beyond that first week or two. And I kept coming back and kept coming back and, and, and interning for free because I wanted to, because most people hate recruiting and most people will be whoever is the nearest, whoever we've got experience of and we know they're not a dick basically um, and we know perhaps what their weaknesses are but we also know what their strengths are and we've seen how they perform in this environment. Immediately as a, an employer, your risk is lowered. So it's got to be mutually beneficial for those things to work. And some people will say, well, that's really elitist and not everyone can work for free. I was working three jobs. I wasn't working full time for free. I was coming in on a day or two a week and I was working three other jobs to, to support myself. So, um, you know, we, we have, we don't actually at the moment, because it was taking too much of our time to, to do, but we had a really sort of great intern program that went for sort of three months and it was one day a week for three months or you could do an intensive one for two weeks and here's what we need out of it and here's what you can get out of it and what that enabled us to do was to create a really great pipeline of of incredibly talented people many of whom work here now who started as interns yeah i think it's super important actually my girlfriend did uh, a two-week uh, internship here about four years ago no way yeah <laughs> and she uh i think you're right in that you know there's so many people and it is just a way to get experience because you really yep. even going through uni you really don't know what the no, real world is like you don't at all and, and yeah. i will look if someone's interned at different places that gives me a sense okay at least they know what this environment's like they know that it's fast they know that it's not glamorous they know you know um and it's good for you to learn as well because you might go in and i remember when i started interning at cleo and lisa said to me lisa wilkinson said magazines might not be your thing you might be better suited to radio or to um tv or to newspapers um thankfully they were my thing and i stayed there for 15 years but she was right like how are you meant to know yeah. mm. what the workplace is like until you give it a go yeah yeah definitely works can be very beneficial for both parties and i know australia's sort of cracking down on it recently and it's probably a shame if things like that disappear yeah i think with the right again it has to be mutually beneficial mm. and i think that um yeah, it, it is a shame because I think that it can be so helpful for, for both people. Yeah. Something we think is important to probably help in your career in a roundabout sort of way is like having side hustles and having yeah. things that are on the side to build skills. And I know that's something you definitely agree with as well. What are, what are your views on side hustles and why should people do it and what can they get out of it? Oh, side hustles are the best. So there's this great thing that Elizabeth Gilbert talks about in that um, she says – 
people often confuse a hobby, a job, a career and a vocation. She said for some people, for some lucky people, there will be a lot of overlap there. But for a lot of other people, there won't. And just because you love doing something doesn't necessarily mean that you should put the pressure on it of making it pay you to do it. Um, Side hustles are a great way of exploring that. So, um, you know, they're they're a really great way to say, I'm going to do this on the side. I'm not going to give up my day job. And so she says that it really freaks her out when people come to hear her talk. She's this famous author. She wrote Eat, Pray, Love and and many other books. And she said, but, but before she became an author, she always wrote. She couldn't not write. But she did 100 jobs. And they were everything from waitressing to nannying to all different kinds of things. And she said it freaks her out if people come and hear her talk and they go, I've decided I'm going to quit my job as a lawyer and write my novel. Mm. She's like, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> Keep the job as a lawyer. Write the novel on the side, on weekends, after hours, in your holidays, whatever. And I think that that's really true. I think that it always makes me nervous when anyone says, you know, I've got this lady's startup course now for people who want to um, – have an idea and they want to turn it into a business and I always say do not leave your job this is something you start as a side hustle and then you see if you like it you see if it's got legs um but side hustles can be can also be a way to to be enormously creatively fulfilled if perhaps your job what earns you money uh isn't that fulfilling Mm -hmm. yeah another quote from um your book I think you say uh fuck your passion (laughs) fuck (laughs) your dreams fuck Fuck your dreams dreams. yeah yeah, fuck your dreams (laughs) fuck your dreams (laughs) as a that's inspiring, isn't it? It's probably um, it's probably yeah, good to clear that one up. I think yeah. fuck your dreams versus fuck your passion, but um, yeah, side side hustles being an opportunity to actually explore your passions, and who knows if you take enough little bets and little swings on the weekends, yeah, potentially your passion might end up being something you can make money off, right? But you can't. Yeah, can't quit your job straight away. Yeah, and a, 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 a Gen wife, a, a millennial friend of mine said she wanted to write a book called Fuck Your Dreams and I stole that from her because um, that whole just reach for the stars and if you want mm. it badly enough, like all those bullshit Instagram quotes, it's not true and not everything you want to do owes you a living and that doesn't mean you should not do it but if you put the pressure of it, on it of saying, I really like making cupcakes, therefore I should open a cupcake business. Should you though? Or should you just be really great at making cupcakes on weekends? (laughs) Um, Maybe you should, but just don't assume that that's necessarily the right thing to do because, yeah, the idea of just if you want it badly enough, it'll happen, that's bullshit. Mm, Definitely. Something we just read recently, a book called The Black Swan, which talked about survivorship bias in that, you know, uh-huh. there are a certain amount of people that get to a certain amount of success and they think, because I got through here, it worked, this is what everybody yeah, should do. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. They say that um, history is told by the winners mm. and often business history is told by the survivors or the winners and that gives mm. people a really misleading idea of, of what it can be like. You're very right. You're very true. Mm. And often the unconscious bias of not thinking, well, I got here because I knew I could take risks because I had a safety net or whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and extending that a little bit further, the way Nassim Taleb says is the way out of it is you look at the entering cohort. So let's say a stereotypical mm. seminar of someone spruiking this, uh, all you got to do is think about it or law of attraction kind of stuff. Rather than look at them as being the successful person, you look at the entering cohort and then use that as your starting place to actually measure how good their teachings are really. That's really clever. That's why it's important, always been important for me that we hire all different kinds of people from all different kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds and nationalities and, and, you know, because, well, for us, we're creating content for women. We're creating content for all kinds of women in all different life stages and circumstances. So you want a diverse mix as possible. I also just think it's smart for business. Mm. Yeah. And walking through your offices, you definitely have this diverse um, mix. Can you just tell us a little bit about uh, Mamma Mia and some of your um, principles? I, I saw you had some interesting values when I was in, oh, in the yeah. bathroom before. We <laughs> stick them on the back of the toilet yeah, door. Right. <laughs> we do. Yeah. They're everywhere. So um, I, I'm all about the feelings and my husband and co-founder is about the facts. And so um, he read a couple of amazing books that have helped us go from startup to scale up. And one of them was Vern Harnish's Scaling Up. 
and which you may have heard of. And I think it's in that that it talks a lot about core values. And people also often talk about the culture of Bill. We've got this culture. We've got that culture. But the way you define a culture, otherwise it's a pretty amorphous thing, is through core values. And the core values can't be imposed from the top down. They have to come from the bottom up within a business. So when we first started and we were more in startup mode, and we had, you know, a couple of dozen employees, we all got together and we were like, okay, we got, what are the core values of our business? And because it was a different time, one of our core values was don't freak out because there was just a lot of stuff going on. Another one was get shit done. And another one was um, put your sparkle on. And they all spoke to different aspects of our business. Now, when we moved to a scale up, um, and we sort of articulated our core purpose as a business, which is also really true, the why, the Simon Sinek, what's your why? For us, it's to make the world a better place for women and girls. And so our core values, our, our, our core purpose is our why, but our core values is our how. Like, how do we do what we do? And so some of them have changed. So, for example, in the early days of a business in startup, people talk about move fast and break things. You know, that's the Facebook one and a lot of people say that. And that is what it's like in a startup. When you're a scale-up, though, you can't move fast and break things anymore because the things are expensive (laughs) and the stakes are higher. So now we have a core value that never would have worked as a startup, but it's measure twice, cut once. And that's about taking the time to make sure Mm – that you're not moving so fast that you're going to break something that's expensive, that you're actually really considering what you're doing before you do it. Mm. It's a really interesting transition. So from the start, it was more get it done, yeah. get it done. That's the, the, the priority. And now yeah. you've shifted toward get it done, but get it right is probably more important. Get it. Exactly. And I am much more comfortable in startup mode. Yeah. So now what I find that I do is that I just make little startups within the bigger company. So I work... Um, almost as a little satellite. So I kind of identify where I think women are going to go next. Uh, what's what, what are these big waves that are coming? And so, for example, we launched our podcast um, network. It wasn't a network. It was just three of us sitting on the floor with a phone recording something <laughs> three years ago. Cool. Um, and more recently I've started Lady Startup, which is about female entrepreneurs and helping women start side hustles and businesses. So I've worked out that I'm I'm not on our leadership team. I took myself off our leadership team this year oh. because I don't I I've been managing people and working at that senior level for twenty five years and it's it's where I'm most unhappy. You know, I think that that ladder is what you just always you think, I wanna go higher, I wanna go higher, I wanna get more responsibility, I wanna have more direct reports. Um, if you're working for someone else, it's like, I want a bigger salary. I want a bigger office. I want a bigger job. But to me, the higher I get, the further away I get from what I love doing, which is being hands-on creative. So, and I think that that can happen. Mm. I really think that that can happen. Yeah. That's a really interesting, yeah. Especially as the, as you say, the higher you go up, what you started isn't anything like what it is now. No. And each time, like when I left, I was a media executive for 15 years. And when I left to do Mamma Mia and I was in my lounge room, literally working 18 hour days doing everything it was just me for two years I was um exhausted and I was overwhelmed but I was also exhilarated because that's what I'd missed is that hands-on actually doing it now the scaling up part is anathema to me I don't enjoy it because it's more about rigor it's more about um, process it's more about strategy and they're things that I don't enjoy at all so fortunately my co-founder has got that um and we distribute our um skills you know, down the middle in that way. Um, But it took me a long time to realise that because, of course, I'm also really ambitious and I want to go be promoted and be promoted and get higher and have more staff and more direct reports, but no. Interesting. I think it's probably a good time to transition into Lady Startup. Sure. And, uh, yeah, tell us what's happening. What are you doing? What are you building? So um, I had been running, you know, obviously Mamma Mia is a media company and we've got podcast network, we've got written content, we've got video content. But I sort of started to feel um, an energy. It's really hard to describe it without it sounding woo-woo. But I just recognised that a big change was coming for women and what women were focused on. And I have some friends who've got startup businesses, who've got businesses, and some of them are in fashion and I love clothes. So I would wear their clothes and then I would put them on Instagram and they would see, they would say to me, 
this has changed our business. This moves the dial for us when you post a picture of yourself in our shoes or our skirt, whatever. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So, of course, I thought, oh, wow, if I can do it for them, who else can I do it for? And I realized that, you know, going back to our core purpose at Mamma Mia, in the media part of our business, we make the world a better place for women and girls through content, through making women feel seen and giving them a voice and giving them a platform and helping them understand the world. But there are other ways too. So through Lady Startup, I just started an Instagram account. I went to our, snuck off to our art department and got someone to do me a logo. And then I just started this Instagram account where I started posting photos of all kinds of women's businesses, not just women I knew, but all kinds of businesses. And it grew and it grew and it grew. And then at one point I was spending more and more time on it. And, and Jason came to me and said, what, what is this? Like, what are you doing? What's the business model? And I was like, I don't know. Just I'll find one. I'm just following it. Mm-hmm. And so then I realized I listened to the community and we built this community and they said, we, we want to start businesses, but we don't know how. We don't, want to, we don't know how. So there's like two branches. There's the activation plan, which is for people who want to start their own business. And then there's the Rocket Club, which we're launching next year, which is for women who already have their businesses and want to grow them. Yeah, because I didn't just want to do another content site. Yeah. And we've got our podcast, which is free, and we've got our Instagram. Because there's the women who want – there's 1.2 million women who run their own businesses in Australia. I reckon there's twice that many who want to or who have side hustles they'd like to grow. Mm. And then there's all the other women, the millions more, who just want to support them. Mm. Who, if they have the choice of hiring a caterer, you know, a lawyer, a cleaner – a carpenter buying a pair of shoes, they'd like to support a woman in business rather than a big multinational. Or Yeah, definitely. And what are some of the, the challenges and opportunities that women face compared to, say, um, males when it comes to launching startups? One of the biggest ones is our other responsibilities, usually as primary carers. And interestingly, that is what drives most women into wanting to start their own business is they want more flexibility and they want control over their own hours. They don't necessarily want to work less hours, but it, that was certainly true for me. You know, I'd worked in, in the corporate world, but I had two young kids and I went on to have another one at the time. And I didn't want to have to sit at a desk just because it was five o'clock and my, you know, peers hadn't gone home yet. If I knew that I could get that work done at home or, you know, if I knew that I wanted to go somewhere during the day but could, would catch up on weekends... I wanted to be able to be in charge of my own hours. And, and, you know, all the research shows that women will forego um, a pay increase in exchange for flexibility in many cases, not always, but many cases, because the stress of working someone else's crazy hours are very different to the stress of working your own crazy hours because of that level of control. So... um, when you say what are the big differences for women, what technologies enabled women to do is start their own businesses. Because before, if you wanted to open up a store, you had to find an actual store and you had to sit in it all day, every day. But with the internet, you can open an online store or an online business and you can work freelance, you can work part-time, you can you don't have to be at the other end of a phone all day to, to pick up an inquiry from a customer. So it's it's been a, a real gift for women in that sense. How do people get started? What's your advice as to, you know, they've got this idea, I, I want to take more control, I want to have more options. Yeah. What are the first things they should be doing? Um, well, we kind of took, there's so much information out there and <laughs> I had girlfriends that said to me when they started their businesses, they sort of went, oh, well, surely there's got to be one place where all of it is and they went to like a government website and there was a picture of a merino sheep and it was like... <laughs> Australia is built on the back of export, but no actual information (laughs) on, but where do I register an ABN and when do I need to start paying tax? Um, So we, I I looked at all the information that was out there and took my own experience and divided it into this six-week plan that I have put together. Um, So, you know, that sort of takes you through those steps, which is build your idea build your brand, build your product, build your scaffolding, build your market, build your audience and then build your launch. Because mm. they're the steps. There's a lot of steps. But you need to break it down and make it simple. Mm. On that, uh, the note of building an idea, Yeah. What, what do you recommend for, say, someone right now, they're in their job, they're not loving it, they want to run their own business yeah. for this flexibility, they've got their things they're passionate about, should they be following that? And how do you have the balance of passion compared to, say, something that's actually going to make them money and is really practical? 
That's the thing, isn't it? So um, we build out a free Kickstarter idea Kickstarter, which is one of those things that's really important to because a lot of people have the desire, but they're just not sure if they've got an idea that will turn, you know, translate into something because you want to find a gap in the market, but you've got to make sure there's a market in that gap. That's crucial. Mm. And so, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) just because you want something, (laughs) does anyone else want something, want it to? And one of the first, you know, we talk about in the course, one of the first best ways to do that is anyone else doing it and you don't have to invent Facebook or Uber you know you don't have to be a massive disruptor you can be a niche like there's there's um, a lady startup I discovered who makes uh, clothes and accessories like little sleeping bags and stuff for kids with a condition called hip dysplasia where they have to have their legs kind of set in a brace in this funny awkward way for the first few months of their life and it means that it's hard to find clothes and it's hard to find sleeping bags. And this obviously came from this person had a child with this condition, went looking, couldn't find anything, learned that there were lots. It's not an uncommon condition. There were lots of people in her. There was a market in her gap, basically, a gap in the market, market in the gap, mm. and started doing it. So it's this really deep niche that she's got where, um, you know, you can do that. I mean, down to the the woman who was really enjoying making salted caramel and everyone's like, you've got this amazing salted caramel. She started selling it. Name was Misty, started selling Misty salted caramel at local markets. She's now got 40 stockists around Australia. She still makes it in her kitchen. Um, Most of these women will have day jobs or it will be. Another big, big motivating factor for women is just the boredom and the lack of meaning of when you're at home with little kids, I don't mean that's not meaningful to be a parent. It's amazing, but it can be really boring and your brain can be really um, frustrated by having no one to talk to or nothing to do. And so they say that they want to have something that's theirs. And even if it is a side hustle, even if it doesn't make any money or if it makes a minimal amount of money, or even if it's just, you know, spare change money, it's theirs. The satisfaction that comes from work should never be mm. underestimated because we don't just work for money. We also work for meaning. Definitely. I think one thing that holds people back from starting businesses, I don't know if it's a more or less for women, or maybe you can tell us, but I think just the idea of like it has to be, I've got this big idea and I have to build this perfect thing, whether it's I want to be yeah. on all the supermarket shelves or I, I want to have the perfect um, crisp video. I can't have just a cheap you know, iPhone selfie version of my video. Yep. How can we counteract that? And what's this? Because it sounds like like you started, you know, this whatever you did, it started as a small idea, not the big, massive worldwide thing. It started no. with uh, you were saying how you started with just recording off your iPhone yep. and your podcast. Oh god, yes. We didn't have equipment. We didn't. Then we were like we're in, and we didn't have a studio. It was so. I think that you don't want to let perfect be the enemy of mm. done. Mm. Um, and I think that that's really true. I'm really good at not being perfect because another thing that people talk about perfectionism. That's often just a way of being scared. It's just a form of fear. Saying I can't do it unless it's perfect or you're just too scared to do it. Like it's better to Mm. do something not perfectly than nothing and have it perfect in your brain. And another story that Elizabeth Gilbert told me about a friend of hers who is not another author, she says that um, she her favourite time of writing a book, she's a novelist, is when she's got the idea in her head and she calls it this like beautiful like – she calls it like this tourmaline bird that like flies around and it's all perfect. And she says, that's the best time because the process of actually writing the book, you've got to take the bird, you've got to get a hammer, you've got to smash it. <laughs> Sounds violent. You've got to smash it and then you've got to rebuild it. Yeah. And you've got to accept that that idea that you have in your head of your product, your business, your book, it's never going to be that good. Mm. And you've got to go, okay, it's not, but I still want to do it. Yeah, and nice. if you don't want to do it enough then there's your answer. Hmm. And it is, even when you don't have an imperfect product or anything, it is really scary pushing things out for the first time and posting on Facebook and letting all your family and your friends know it's such a vulnerable period where you are, you know, when you're actually trying to do something in the world, you you are vulnerable to attack, really. Yeah, and it's, for women, it comes down to imposter syndrome often as well. You think, oh, I can't start a, how can I start a business? Like, I don't have any business skills. I don't have a business background. What right do I have? I don't know if guys feel this, but women often do. Um, and, you know, in, in our activators group, the women who are doing the course, they're often like, I really want to spend time on it. But, I, you know, I feel guilty about getting a babysitter to come and look after the kids for two hours a week while I work on it because, you know, what right do I have to do that? So, um, you know, there's a lot of 
there's also a lot of, of baggage that comes around with the idea of women and being ambitious. Like ambition is a very coded word for among women and for women that women are encouraged to be very wary of because, oh, she's really ambitious. Yeah. <laughs> it's never said as a compliment. Yeah, yeah I like it. There was a, we did the, the book Lean In and there was a yeah saying that you know ambitious – uh, whilst on the surface it sounds like a good thing, it's really not used as and for a for men. It's, a, a it's seen thing. as a positive thing. Always, very ambitious and always, yeah. That that I think that book has such value. It's also flawed in many ways, as Cheryl Sandberg herself admits. Um, and she's learned a lot since that book came out that she didn't know at the time. Not least of which she's learnt by um, tragically losing her husband mm. uh, and learning what it's like to be a single mum. But um, what what I think is a value of that book, which is so often overlooked, is that Sheryl Sandberg wasn't telling everyone to lean in. Her point, as I understood it, was when you can lean in. Her complaint was that she would deal with young women who would say, I can't take this promotion because in the future I might want to have kids and that won't be compatible with this future hypothetical life. And she's like, do you even have a boyfriend or a girlfriend? And they'll be like, no, but one day. And she's like, take the job, mm-hmm. lean in, lean in while you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't mean you can't lean out. Doesn't mean you make, get to make one choice. We're making choices all the time. People who say, oh, particularly as comes to, uh, down to women, oh, she picked, she picked family over career or she picked career over family. It's not like you only get to pick once. You have to choose as a woman. You've got 20 things in front of you that need to be triaged every day. You've got to choose what goes on the top of the pile. But you can choose something different to go on the top of the pile tomorrow. You know, today it might be that your kid needs you or work needs you, whatever it happens to be. Tomorrow, something else might be the priority. Mm. I'm interested to hear what uh, she thought she got wrong in that. One of the interesting things she said in it, and this may or may not be it, she's like saying from the perspective you can't, you don't have to be the perfect mother as well, which really goes against popular advice. Um, so that's really balancing the, the two priorities of having a career, but also being the perfect mum. So how, what, what are your thoughts there? I think that I don't even think anyone would try to be the perfect mum, but even our society's definition of what makes a good mum is really, uh, well, unfortunately, it seems to be really have gotten... Um, become synonymous with the mo- whoever spends the most time with their kid is the best mum. And that's not necessarily true. That's that's a really simplistic, linear way of looking at it. So um, I think there's lots of different ways to be a good mum and you can also be the best mum that you can be. There's a lot of women who will tell you, if I had to be at home with my kids all day, I would not be a good mum. Um, I think one of the things that makes you a better mum and a happier person is having a life outside your children. Whatever that takes doesn't mean you have to be Sheryl Sandberg and climb the corporate ladder and look for a C-suite, but it might be starting a blog. It might be listening to podcasts. It might be whatever it is, just having some kind of life and identity outside your role as a mother. Um, I I always say to women, you just got to lower the bar. Like we're really, really tough on ourselves. I think men are much more forgiving of their own flaws and inadequacies and they just shrug and go, "Hmm, yeah, oh well. Whereas women are like, I'm a bad person because I didn't hand make my kid's birthday cake. (laughs) I'm like, lower the bar, lower the bar. In terms of a bit meta as Mamma Mia as a whole or yep. and also anyone with an audience, how much do you see your role or responsibility as uh, one option is sort of just almost commenting and just making people aware of this is what's happening? Another is changing the individual person, trying to give them a different idea of, uh, you know, this is ways you can take some responsibility and start to change things or changing you know, institutions and laws and things, where do you see yourself fitting into those sort of three categories? That's such an interesting question. And it's one, it was one of the criticisms of leaning. I don't know if that's what you're referring to the idea of making, um, the difference between the personal and the political. So a really effective way to, um, silence an oppressed minority or majority in the case of women is to tell them, it's just your problem. You're the only one that's got a problem with this. It's personal. You must be not able. There must be something wrong with you. Oh, everyone else You're has got work-life balance. <laughs> What's wrong with you? Instead of going, you know what? It's really messed up that kids have 14 weeks of school holidays and workers only have four. Like, 
how does that maths work? Or it's really messed up that school finishes at three, but the working day doesn't. How does any, like, instead of going, gosh, you know, it's a shame you can't get your shit together and you're really (laughs) struggling. Um, So I think that that by making the political personal, that's really disempowering for any group. Mm -hmm. So I think that when women can go, hey, yeah, it's really messed up that this happens or that, you know, whatever it happens to be, there aren't very many women on boards or it's not just about that you're not good enough to be on a board. It's the fact that systemically we have a problem with white men on boards choosing other white men to be on boards, choosing other white men to be on boards and that's why there's no diversity on boards. It's not just because this individual woman or that individual woman is not good enough and that's why the kind of the merit argument makes me want to scream with rage because if you believe, as I do and I assume most normal people do, that, you know, intellectual capacity is equal among the sexes, you've got smart people and you've got dumb people both among women and men, um, it just doesn't make sense that that there's not more diversity on boards. Mm. But how does it go from... Uh, you know, commenting on this is what's happening to how do you actually start to change it? Is it just this groundswell of now everybody's becoming more and more aware of it and it builds up like that? Well, I think probably the second part of the answer to your question is that personal stories are an entry point into something for women. So it's we will run, more likely run a personal story about, say, domestic violence uh, is going to be much more impactful mm. than running a story with statistics. Mm, definitely. Um, and then what else women like to do is to make a difference. You also asked about that. Instead of just reading something and going, oh. Sometimes the actual sharing of information though, sharing, clicking like, clicking share, that to women is part of the making a difference because we're prim- we're genetically programmed to share information for the well-being and the safety of our tribe. And so there's status in sharing high-quality information for women and also um, it's just part of what we do. So um, that idea of, of sharing and d- helping amplify a message is something women are very, very good at. Mm-hmm. I've got um, a bit of a three-pronged question. So wow. there you go. <laughs> might be two-pronged. We'll see where yep. pronged there might be. Okay. But, uh, it's a bit of a lead-on to Astro's question. So what are some of the things that you're doing here to – um, enable women. One of them might be the flexibility. And the second part to that is, do you think there is like a market opportunity for enabling women more to reach their potential that all the other businesses aren't doing? So the ones who go down this road are going to be more profitable um, in the long run? Well, I think that um, retaining women in your workforce just makes economic sense. Having women in leadership roles, we know positively impacts the performance of any company. Um, having a gender balance makes a workforce, a workplace happier. And ironically, one of our challenges is to hire more men because we have so many women <laughs> here. Uh, we have about 75 women and about six men. And all the, you know, when they look at engagement surveys and, and the, the most happy workplaces have that gender balance. Um, so there's pretty much, and, you know, retaining women makes economic sense because you've put all this effort into training them. Um, they've got corporate memory and you don't want them to just walk out the door when they have kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, it has to make sense for the business as well as being the right thing to do. And I think what a lot of people don't realise is that it's, good for business it's good for business to retain women in your company it's good for business to have more women at senior leadership levels or on on your boards it just makes business sense absolutely it doesn't have to be an altruistic thing Mm. yeah Yeah, definitely yeah i think i think that you know ideas around flexibility is probably good for everyone as well I think if it's, it's also good for men, that's yeah. the other thing. You know, Annabelle Crabb's brilliant book, um, The Wife Drought, which you guys should definitely read and talk to her. Um, I'll I'll put in a good word. It's brilliant because it's about why women need wives and men need lives. And mm-hmm. the thing is that the reason that that um, in some ways the women's movement has stalled is because men haven't been allowed to change enough. Men are still pretty much. Um, stuck in this idea of I have to go and be the breadwinner and work full time. Whereas women now, when you look at two generations ago, the way our lives are so different from our grandmothers, 
But your lives probably aren't that different from your grandfather's in terms of the expectations around Mm. what you do and what he had to do. And it should be. Like there shouldn't be a raised eyebrow when a guy says, oh, I want to work part-time or I want to take paternity leave or Mm. I want to leave early. You know, I want flexibility. We, we need to be encouraging men to have those conversations too. Yeah, awesome. It sounds like a sick book. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, a big, that's a massive one for men to be able to, you know, go on maternity leave. That's just... Um, paternity. Oh, paternity leave. <laughs> paternity. Whatever you want. Just, just, just go and leave. It. Just take it. Yeah, yeah, without an eyebrow, a raised eyebrow and, and the boss saying, oh, you're getting a lot of pressure at home. It's like, no, mm. I actually want that because... It's not that being at home and having flexibility is awful. It's not that being the primary caregiver is awful. It's hard when you have to work full-time and be the primary caregiver and you're not sharing that role. But, you know, Gloria Steinem says that um, gender roles are prisons and they're prisons for men too. Like men's prisons have like wall-to-wall carpet and someone brings you coffee, but it's still a different – it's still a prison, you know. (laughs) It's still a prison to think, oh, this is the only way I can – be a man in the modern age. Yeah. I think uh, Brene Brown, in her book, Daring Greatly, talked about men's emotional prison. In, uh, sorry, men's prison for us is uh, more the, we're seen as so emo- emotionally stable where we can't show any emotion. Mm. And at times when you have to feel emotion, it's really hard. Like I, last night I saw the movie um, A Star Is Born with my girlfriend. I was just yeah. sitting there. Holding, holding the tears in. Did you? <laughs> no, you, had, you had pretty bloodshot eyes. I when had you got bloodshot home. eyes, but I probably, <laughs> if I just let the emotions out, I would have been yeah. weeping, and the whole Sobbing. cinema would have seen me. I think the but chair would have been shaking. <laughs> <laughs> My friend went with her husband. He bawled. Oh, it's I haven't yeah. seen it yet. too far. I think it, it was too sad. I was expecting a happy ending. Were you? I'll leave it there. No spoilers. <laughs> no spoilers. Yeah. I like it. We'll start our slow arc around towards the end and talk about books. What are some of your favorite books or books that have had the biggest impact on you? Oh, wow. Um, in terms of business books, you mean? Lean in, definitely. Um, there's a, a, the only business book I've ever read, apart from that, if that's considered a business book, is um, Donald Miller's Building a Story Brand. Ah. Okay, yeah. It's yeah. fantastic. Mm. Um, I love that. I mean, it's, I'm embarrassed to say we got, you know, 11 years into Mamma Mia without being able to articulate that, mm. story, the story brand, what we do and how we do it. And that's been phenomenal. Absolutely. I found that really, really, really incredibly interesting. Yeah, we read that as well. It's just the idea of uh, on the hero's journey, most businesses and brands position themselves as the hero. You know, yes. we've been alive for, we've been around for yes. 30 years. Where no one cares. Yeah. <laughs> but, no one cares. Yeah, but the, the yeah, a hero. You're yeah. meant to be the, the guide and think about what does the customer want mm-hmm. and what is their journey <laughs> and what's their dragon and gold that they got to find and then um, position themselves as the hero and the whole thing changes and the thought processes changes <laughs> as well. That is fantastic. And that really ties into a lesson that I was taught um, implicitly by my first boss, Lisa Wilkinson, which is always walk in her shoes. And that's one of our core values, both in startup phase and now. And it's the one I use the most. And for different people in our business, it means different things. So for our editorial team, always walk in her shoes means the shoes of our audience. For our sales team, it means walk in the shoes of our clients and our advertisers. Um, but that's crucial because I think you can get so caught up in, back to Donald Miller's point about I'm the hero of this story. Mm. No, you're not. You're not making your product or your content for yourself. You are making it for your audience. So, you know, you guys would have done it instinctively, come in and gone, well, maybe we want to ask Mia about blah, 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 but that's not what our audience wants. What does our audience mm. audience want? Um so yeah, the, so the lean in, building a story brand, the wife drought, Annabelle Crabb's book, uh, just friggin' brilliant. Um, I'm speaking on my friends, but Lee Sales, Any Ordinary Day, it's, you know, she's done that rare, rare, rare thing, which is it's a critical and a commercial success because it's a really easy read, but it is all about how life can change in an instant. And how you move on from those life-changing moments that just started as an ordinary day and then something happens. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very bad at remembering books, but they're probably the ones that, that I recommend most often. I'm in the middle of reading Michelle Obama's Becoming, uh-huh. uh, which is her kind of autobiography, which is brilliant. And it's reminding me that I'm so down on America at the moment because of Trump. And I'm like, how can this country have elected this man? And reading Michelle Obama's book is reminding me that they also elected Barack Obama. True. Yeah. So <laughs> hopefully there is yeah. hope. It's a bit like a palate cleanser. Well, I just hope that um, 
with Trump, it's going so far the other way. There's so much unease around the world. It might just spring back in the other direction um, very rapidly in the next election. Who knows? I hope so. It's like pendulums, isn't it? Yeah. And people say, well, this seems to be... Oh, yeah, it's just it's hard to watch. Mm. A few other podcasting questions we want to ask yeah. as well. You've obviously got a massive podcast of your own and a whole bunch of other Mamma Mia podcasts. Uh, we want to know, have you, ever, have you ever had a stinker, like a real shock in an interview that wasn't going well uh, or not? <laughs> I've had a few okay. of those. And how in do you say three that? years, um, I've done a couple of hundred podcasts. So I've got No Filter, which is my long form interview podcast. And then I've got um, also a podcast about American politics called Tell Me It's Going to Be Okay that I host with a girlfriend. And then I've got our kind of the news of the week podcast called Mamma Mia Out Loud, which I host with um, two other co-hosts from here. Um, In terms of the interview one though, because that's where it can go wrong, I've learned a couple of things. There was one podcast that I did um, remotely. She was in our Melbourne studio and we didn't have a visual uh, link. So I couldn't see her. I could just hear her. And one of my favourite podcast interviewers, Terry Gross from Fresh Air, which is an NPR podcast. She's one of the most famous podcast interviewers in the world. She is never in the same room as anyone she interviews. Even if they're in the same city, they're in the same building, they're in a different studio. My suspicion is that is that so she can read her notes and look at her notes. Because when you're in the same room, breaking eye contact is the killer. It's the absolute killer if you want to just keep that. So I've learnt that. Anyway, so I didn't I couldn't see this person and I was asking her questions and she was quiet and I thought she was thinking hard about them because they were um, you know, they were not rude questions, they were just genuine questions. And she ended up exploding and walking out and we didn't end up airing the podcast. And afterwards I realised that because I couldn't see her, I couldn't mm-hmm. see her body language because I rely on that a lot, which I didn't realise, to read. Because ha- you don't want to, if someone's uncomfortable, you don't want to keep pushing on yeah. that button. And the only other time that's happened to me was when I was interviewing someone who had had a huge amount of Botox and plastic surgery <laughs> and I was asking her these questions and then just suddenly... Tears started coming out of her eyes and she said, no, 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 you got to stop. And I'm like, what happened? Like, again, because nothing moved on her face. All of those signals I would have otherwise been hyper alert to, I couldn't. And her crying was the same as her not crying and suddenly there was water on her face. So body language is really important. You want someone to feel very relaxed. I don't tend to film the podcast because mm-hmm. as soon as someone knows they're being filmed, they get more nervous. Yeah. Um, but eye contact. So I do my prep before and I walk in without notes. Mm, and that's nice. taken a, a while to get to that point. But I remember reading that about Andrew Denton when he used to do enough rope. And Andrew is, you know, Andrew Denton, Richard Feidler are the, the gods of, of in, the interview format. And I get that now. He talks about how he used to study furiously and then he'd walk out onto that set and sit down and there would be no notes. Great. Like, I think we're about we're on that journey. We're about seventy percent there. You can yep. see we've got some notes <laughs> here. It's been noted. Points have been deducted. Wow. It's also, really it's really I'm hard. With and, eye contact as well. And you I'm, know what? It takes uh, no. You guys are really good. It takes a lot of experience to be able to just stay locked on. Mm. You've got it. You've really got to read how how someone is. And you know, I was interviewing um, someone the other day, a journalist actually, and it was a, a, a bit about something and. And I could see that he was getting a bit sort of flustered or something. So I had to give him some breaks by actually telling him the story that I was asking about it because I, I knew it, of course. Mm. I was talking to him about his own podcast. And I had to tell the story just to give him a few moments to just catch his breath and have a drink. And so you just, yeah, it's it's trial and error. It's just um, frequent flyer miles. You just have to get your air miles up. And the more you do it, the more you learn and the easier you get. It's hard doing it with the two of you. The two of you mm. are really good because the interrupting is the other thing, of course. Mm. And those first year of podcasts that I used to listen back to mine, I would be like, shut up, <laughs> just shut up. They were just talking, shut up. Like we just got to a good bit. Yeah, absolutely. And we've, uh, we've interviewed you now. We're wrapping up toward the end. Um, you mm. mentioned uh, something about the notes and it might be – Turning this on silent might be another thing. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. But, uh, <laughs> no, you've been really subtle about it. <laughs> any, uh, any other advice the, the way we've done it that you think we could do differently? 
Do you prepare before who asks what question? Because you kind of bounce back really seamlessly. We've got this a, a, This is our trick. So we have. The, we always have <laughs> something in the middle. And then if someone wants to ask something, you have that. And then if it leaves the brain, you go like that. And then that is genius. Because <laughs> so, I knew you must have a trick because you don't interrupt each other yeah. and you don't do that. Oh, oh no, you go. So, yeah, I would say, apart from looking away sometimes, which is unavoidable, mm. um, you guys are Im- really impressive because a two-on-one podcast can be really quite challenging logistically, but no, you've got it down. Oh, cool. And you're right, you instinctively do that thing about you, you signal when you're wrapping up because that's the other thing you want to – oh, I know what else I do. I will always say when I'm interviewing an author – now, I'm going to have to ask you some questions that make it seem like I haven't read your book because the audience pr- might not have, but I have. And they'll, and I know that as an author myself because there's nothing – well, there's a lot of things worse. But, you know, when you're doing an interview and you know that someone's – Yeah, and, and you know that yeah. they haven't even looked at it. Yeah. It's like it's – it's just annoying. Like it's life and you deal with it. But people really appreciate that. That's and incredible. it also covers me if I mm. haven't. <laughs> well, that's, no, that's, that's my good. secret. Well, that's great advice. I think sometimes one of our things we do is when implicit in our question, we try and prove to them, yeah, look, we really understand. Yeah, what, I could tell you did that. Mm, You're lovely. Yeah. But you don't, have to, you don't have to. If you say that, it mm. just covers you from any awkwardness where they go, well, yeah, I said that in my book. And sometimes they can get a bit shitty. And if you just say, you know. The other thing that I do is that I do a lot of non-verbal encouragement, which you guys do as well. Lots of raising my eyebrows and nodding my head, which doesn't interfere with the listener's um, experience of listening to it. It keeps me still out of the podcast, but it makes the person talking feel encouraged to keep talking. Yeah. Great. I know we talked about building a story brand and the customers here, we just took it back for ourselves right there. And (laughs) I don't know if that's any any value to them, but we'll take it. (laughs) I think everyone loves a bit of behind the scenes. Yeah, Yeah, I love it. Where can people find you and Mamiya and your podcast and Lady Startup? Uh, Ladystartup.com.au is great for anything you want to know about starting a business. Um, Instagram is my preferred method of uh, social media. So I'm just at Mia Friedman. And then mamamia.com.au, that's where you can find all our podcasts. At the top, it says watch, read, listen. We've really simplified it. So, um, yeah, it's all there. Awesome. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Lovely to meet you both. Guys, that was awesome. That was great. We loved that. Good at this. (laughs) You made it easy for us. You definitely made it easy for us. Yeah.